Well, we're going to look at a, a fairly difficult text this morning. For those of you uh, who are regular here, you would say, what's new? Uh, we tend to do that a lot here. But I, I want to start off by asking you a question. The question would be this. What's the biggest mistake you've ever made? You don't have to shout it out. What's the biggest mistake? And just let that float through your mind for a moment. Some mistakes are reversible. We can go back and hit the rewind button and go back and do a little repair. Some mistakes are irreversible. Uh, time's moved on. Can't go back and fix it. For two particular guys who were uh, involved in a garage sale a few years ago, the mistake that one of them made was completely irreversible. Bob had been shopping at garage sales all morning long on a particular Saturday morning back in the 1990s. And he had not had much success at looking for whatever he was looking for when people go to garage sales. Many people don't know. They're just looking for a deal. And Bob was no different. And uh, he made his way all the way through this one particular garage and got to the end of what the owner was offering and kicked the ground and said, oh, there's another wasted morning because it was his last garage sale of the day. And he turned quickly and then saw in the corner of the garage something that was not part of the garage sale. And it was obviously a motorcycle because it was underneath a quilt and some drapes laying on top of it, but it was in the far back corner. However, it was unmistakable because of the handlebars on it that it was a Harley-Davidson, not just any motorcycle. So Bob, being as bold as he was, went up to the owner of the garage sale and said, uh, how about that motorcycle in the corner? Is that for sale? Well, I guess, why not? It's been sitting in that corner for at least 20 years. I bought it for $15. Tell you what, if you give me $35 for it, you can have it. They'll give me at least that much at the junkyard because the motor's been seized up. I bought it with the motor seized up. Has no value. Bob said, okay, nonetheless, I'll take it anyways. He said, can I pick it up tomorrow? Guy said, sure, come on back. Bob came back the next day, picked it up. Soon it was occupying space in his garage under a blanket. And a few days went by. Bob decided he might as well call the Harley-Davidson dealer to see what it would cost him to buy a few parts for the machine. He gave the serial number to the Harley-Davidson dealer and gave his name and address. And the individual said, uh, Bob, um, I need to call you back. And he sounded very nervous on the phone. Immediately, Bob said, okay, but um, all right, I was just looking for a few simple parts. A couple days went by, and Bob never heard anything back from the dealer. But in the meantime, he's thinking, I've got like a Hell's Angel stolen motorcycle in my garage, and somebody's coming to get me. And by the time his fears subsided, his phone rang again. And this time, it was not the dealer from Harley-Davidson. It was a vice president from the Harley-Davidson headquarters in Wisconsin. He said, Bob, I've been told that you have a certain motorcycle with a serial number I'd like to read back to you. Can I do that? Bob said, yeah, I guess so. What's this about? He said, would you just listen as I read you the serial number? So he read it to him. He said, Bob, I need you to do me a favor. He started talking to him like an air traffic controller. I'd like you to put the phone down in the kitchen, and would you go out to the garage and take the seat off the motorcycle? and see if you could bring it back into the kitchen and get on the phone with me again. Bob said, yeah, but what's this about? Why are you calling me like this? He said, would you just do it, Bob? Just trust me. Bob went to the garage, picked up the seat off the motorcycle, brought it back into the house, holding a Phillips screwdriver in one hand and the seat in the other, and the phone cradled in his shoulder. 
He said, what's this about? He said, Bob, would you flip the seat over and see if there's anything engraved underneath? Bob said, yeah, okay. Flipped it over. And he said, okay, it says the king. What's this about? You know what the king is. Elvis Presley's motorcycle had been missing for years and years. A 1957 panhead, no less. The vice president of Harley-Davidson said, Bob, I've been authorized by my boss to give you $300,000. Do we have a deal? (laughs) Bob said, I need to call you back. (laughs) And he didn't call him back right away. The next day, his phone rang. It was Jay Leno. Jay said, Bob, as you might know, I have an interest in motorcycles. I'm prepared to offer you $500,000. Do we have a deal? What changed? Why did things become so valuable? Because the name the king was attached to it. Isn't that remarkable? A $35 piece of scrap metal sitting in the garage, seized up motor, but because of the name that was attached to it. It's a remarkable story. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 11 this morning, and uh, we're also going to look at the book of Genesis. So I'm going to have you bounce around. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there's Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. And also, all the Scripture verses will be up on the screen this morning so you can read along there. If you don't happen to have a Bible, you're welcome to take one of these home with you if you'd like to do that. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 12, excuse me. And this is how I want to start out. I want you to recognize that in the book of Hebrews, these were instructions that were given to the people who were Jewish, but yet were Christians. Jewish Christians. And the book of Hebrews was written to them as instructions, as well as the fact that it's written for us. In in chapter 11, the author, which is unknown to this day of the book of Hebrews, was telling the story of the heroes of faith, people who were great, men of renown, people whom you would recognize if we mentioned their names today. And he sums it up by saying, these were people of whom the world was not worthy. And then when he comes to chapter 12, he makes a transition. He begins to talk about someone who was ungodly. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 12. Therefore, strengthen the hands, meaning lift them up, much like Moses lifted up his hands in the Old Testament. Strengthen the hands, lift them up, that are weak, and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. I think these verses that we're looking at right now are trademark verses for New Hope Church. To strengthen the weak and the feeble. It's a command, it's a characteristic, and it's our responsibility to lift them up. But after we have cared for the weaker ones, then he gives us a specific instruction for those of us who are strong and those who are believers. And he talks specifically about pursuing the sanctification, the holiness that God has set us apart for. You may not be aware of this, but there's two forms of sanctification or holiness. Positional sanctification, who we are in Jesus If we have a relationship with Christ, 
We are made sanctified in Christ. That's positional sanctification, redeemed. But then there's practical sanctification. Practical sanctification is day-to-day living, how you live out your life, the things that you do to live as a holy person, a hagias people, okay? Now, Hebrews chapter 12 picks up this way in verse 14. Now, this is what I want you to do. After you strengthen the weakened, pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. That's a very strong statement. If you have your Bible and you want to write in your Bible, you should underline that. That should jump out at you like glaring headlights, without which no one will see the Lord. That's a pretty big deal. Sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Verse 15, see to it, be very careful about this, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. This word sanctification I put it up on the screen for you. Hagiosmos. Now, the word hagias in the Greek means holy. You are a holy people. Hagiosmos is the process, the sanctification, being sanctified, the, day, the way you live out your day-to-day actions. And there's two obstacles to being holy in your life. And these, they're always there. They're always popping up. It's personal impurity is the first one. Uh, uh, what Scripture calls a fornicator, someone who takes lightly the things of God and doesn't deal with it and get on their knees before God and ask for forgiveness, all right? That's a, a, a personal impurity. And then the other one is a failure to lay hold of the blessings that God has placed before you. Now, Scripture is very clear. What we just looked at in verse 15, what it said, see to it, it has a specific meaning. See to it is where we get the word episcopal from, or episcopal. You might be familiar with the Episcopal Church. It means to oversee, the episcopal, episcopal. It means looking diligently. So when the writer is instructing you to do this, he's saying, don't take this casually. Take it very seriously. Look diligently to do this. See to it. You have to make sure that this one happens. And here's the three things that you need to see to. All right? Number one, that no one comes short of the grace of God. Number two, that no root of bitterness causes trouble and by it many be defiled. And number three, that there be no immoral or godless person. Now, I'll explain that last one to you in a few minutes as we get further into the message, but I want to draw specifically onto those first two right now. Falling short, and this happens to many believers. Falling short means that when you commit a sin or something negative comes into your life and you fail to deal with it before God, you fall short of the grace of God. You don't go before him and say, Father, I really need your help with this or I need your forgiveness for this. That's falling short. The second one is bitterness, and it's a stage. If you don't do number one, you fall into number two. Bitterness occurs. 
When sin comes into your life and you don't deal with it, or something negative comes into your life and it causes uh, angst, it creates a bitterness. And it causes you to be further separated from God. And Scripture says that when you do that, many become defiled because they begin to watch your walk, how you carry out your day, the anger that you keep inside you, the frustration, the sin that you carry around, and it causes bitterness. Those are the first two stages. It's a failure to deal with God, to go before him and say, Father, I am your holy one. I've been set aside, your hagios person, and I need to deal with the sin in my life. That's the falling short that leads to bitterness. Now, what I want you to do is transition with me all the way back to the book of Genesis. And if you have a pew Bible, it's page 18 where we're going right now, and it's Genesis 25. We're going to look at a very practical way that this played out in the life of an early person of ancient times, and his name was Esau. Genesis 25. Genesis 25 and verse 21. I'm going to set up the background to this. Isaac, who had inherited his fortune from his dad, Abraham. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament at all, you're familiar with the name Abraham. Abraham, the patriarch, the great-grandfather of Israel. Abraham handed down to his son Isaac all that he knew and all of his wealth. Isaac, his wife, was barren for 20 years, and he prayed to God that his wife would bear a child. And God blessed him and answered that prayer. And that's where we pick it up in verse 20, chapter 25, verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children, two of them now, not just one, but the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is so, why then am I this way? Meaning that they were, they were warring with each other in her womb. There was fighting going on. And she's saying, I'm feeling very uncomfortable. So she goes to God. If it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Stay with me. Verse 24. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red, all over, like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Could two men be more different? This is Wall Street versus Redneck. All right? You get the picture? Suit and tie versus overhauls. And I'm thinking Esau's probably driving a four-wheel drive truck and he's got his camo pants on. And you got Jacob over here in a three-piece suit with a Rolex watch. Scripture very clearly talks about Jacob being a peaceful person, a man who liked to sit in the tents and do business. He was just a quiet, contemplative person. And Apparently, Esau, he wore the original mullet. I mean, he's like the redneck of rednecks. 
He not only was born with red skin, he's got red hair, and he's hairy all over. He's an unusual person, but he is a cunning hunter, according to Scripture. He's skillful in the woods, but that's what he knows. He knows the wilderness. These guys are opposite in their appearance, in their character, and they are opposite in their belief structure, as you will soon find out. Verse 29, when Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff, for I am famished. Therefore, therefore his name was called Edom. That red stuff that he's referring to is called lentil soup. I don't know if you've ever had lentil soup. I did a little research on it. You can find lentil soup in Malaysia, and you can find lentil soup in Morocco, and you can find lentil soup in Vietnam, and you can find it in Israel. Lentil soup is a very popular vegetable soup. I've had it before. It has a distinctive earthy taste to it. Um, It's very tasty, actually. It has 29% protein to it. As a matter of fact, it's the world's most sought after next to soybean vegetable soup because it gives people strength when they don't have meat. And, And the lentil bean that... Esau, or Isaac, Jacob would have used to make the soup for Esau was like the orange one that you see there. It's an Egyptian lentil. And it had a very distinctive, rich, earthy, grainy taste to it. And so I'm sure that Esau coming into the house was overwhelmed with the fragrance. Oh, man, I've been out in the field all day and I am really hungry. This sounds like your teenagers, doesn't it? Mom, I'm starving. You know they're not starving. But that's the way he perceives it. Wow, that smells really good. Give me some of that red stuff. Verse 31 says, But Jacob said, First, sell me your birthright. Whoa, that's a pretty big deal. First, sell me your birthright. Esau said, Behold, I'm about to die, so what use of it then is the birthright to me? If you have a King James Bible, it might say, what profit is there to me? As in, I'm not getting any money out of this anytime soon, and I'm out working for a living in the field every day, and I'm hunting, and I'm going up against lions and tigers and bears, so my life's always in danger. What good is this birthright to me? My life is daily at risk is a proper rendering for it. It's quite an exaggeration. It's like the teenager saying, I'm starving. Here's something significant about the birthright. It could be bartered. It could be sold. Under Jewish law, it could be traded. But it was a very significant price tag, typically, that went with it. Here's why. The firstborn of the family receives a double portion of the inheritance. You get $10,000, then the firstborn gets $20,000. No questions asked. It's just part of the culture. Isaac inherited all of Abraham's wealth, and he was very, very rich. Isaac was about to pass on to Jacob or Esau all of his wealth. So this is a big deal. As a matter of fact, Genesis 13.2 says, Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And then in Genesis 24, it says, The Lord has greatly blessed my master Isaac so that he has become rich and he has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and servants and maids and camels and donkeys. He is very, very wealthy. And Esau is going to trade it away 
for a bowl of soup? Go figure. Like I said, I've had lentil soup, and it's very tasty. But I'm not going to exchange it for my destiny. So what's up? Why exchange your future for something so ridiculously simple? Exchanging a destiny for a minor pleasure. I don't get it. All through history, our ancestors have done this. Eve, she traded perfection for a lie. Esau, he traded his destiny for food. Judas, he traded God for money. You see the disparity, the inequality, the inability on the part of these people and those of us today who have the inability to really assess the things of God? You perhaps may not know this, this is just an aside, that when Judas traded Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, it was the greatest insult you could give to anyone in that day and age. 30 pieces of silver is what was given to someone for the death of a slave. When a slave was killed accidentally working in the field by like an ox, you gave the owner of that slave 30 pieces of silver. So when Judas accepted 30 pieces of silver for Jesus' life, I totally disregard him. It's an amazing thought. People continue today to travel down this exact same road, exchanging what could have been for minor pleasures. This is some of the ways that it happens. And here's how I know this. Go back to Hebrews 12 with me. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, because he'd hit the first stage, he'd fallen short, he never asked for God's grace. He hit the second stage, the bitterness, and the third stage, profane, Scripture says, a fornicator or a profane person. What does a profane person do? They trample under the things of God. They take lightly the spiritual matters that you attend to. They don't take it seriously. One thing that you don't know about the birthright, he didn't just get all the money. He didn't just get to determine the family investments. He didn't just get to choose where the family worked and the crops that they planted. But he was also considered to be the spiritual leader of the family. And so he not only threw away all the finances, he also threw away the right to be the leader, the spiritual leader of the family. And so that's why Scripture calls him a profane individual. He trampled under the things of God, trampling upon spiritual matters. I think it's safe to assume that Esau was looking for an opportunity to dump this responsibility. This probably isn't the first time it came to his mind. I'm sure that he and Jacob probably had had this discussion before. In this case, the one who had the birthright in the line of Abraham, Isaac, and now it's going to be Jacob, is the one who would be in the direct line of descendants to Messiah Jesus. Esau had no idea what he was throwing away. Now, Jacob, he indeed was an opportunist, and he, and he seized upon this and took advantage of it. I had a cousin who seized upon an opportunity with me one time when I was 16 years old. I'm out fishing on the lake, and I'm in a bass boat, and he's in a bass boat, and we've got another cousin on the other side of the lake, 
and it's like two in the afternoon, and I'm rowing, and I forgot to bring snacks and a drink out with me. And my cousin yelled over to me, and I'm cooking out there. This is in the middle of June. And he said, hey, you thirsty? I said, man, I am parched. Yeah, you got anything in your boat? Come on over here. So I'm rowing over to him. I get over there. He holds up a case of cold Cokes. Want one? This is lentil soup written all over it. I said, yeah. What you got in your tackle box? I said, I got some new night crawlers, plastic worms. I just bought them. My mom gave me money to get them. I don't really want to give them up. Are you going to make me do that? Well, that's one of the things I want. How much cash you got in your pocket? I said, oh, come on, Don. I am dying of thirst. No, really. How much you got? You know, like you got $5? Give me some worms, $5, a couple of those floating lures. I made the deal. (laughs) I said, okay. I am really, really thirsty. I'm looking around after I'm drinking the Coke. I'm sitting in a spring-fed lake. (laughs) Makes no sense, does it? I could have just cupped some water up and drank it. Esau could have easily gone to one of his dad's other tents. His dad was wealthy. All he had to do was go to one of the servants and say, hey, put me some steak on the barbecue over there and cook that up. He wasn't really about to die. And here is how Jacob treats this. Verse 33. And Jacob said, first, swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Shabbat. He sevened him. You may not have heard that phrase before, but to Shabbat someone means to make them repeat it seven times. Shabbat. I swear to you, as the Lord our God lives, I will give to you my birthright for this bowl of soup. I swear to you, as the Lord our God lives, I will give to you my birthright for this bowl of soup. Seven times he Shabbat him. And then after they did this, they had to put it in writing. So this wasn't just, here, take the soup. This was a commitment. And if at any point during the seven times someone stopped and said, no, I'm not going to do that because they've, they've had time to think it through, the deal was off. He said it seven times, I'm giving up my birthright. They made the transaction and they kept the transaction. Verse 34 then says this, Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. You want to see what profane really looks like? That's profane. That's someone who tramples under lightly the things of God, not taking seriously their destiny. Paul writes in the book of Galatians that one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. This is the way he says it. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you are ruled by your appetites, and it can be money, it can be power, possessions, pleasures, food, You are subject to all kinds of temptations, and Satan can have his day with you. These are the areas that Satan will focus on. These are the areas that he will pounce upon you and use as temptations for you. As believers, God gives us a gift. He gives us the Holy Spirit to say this to you, 
Don't go there. Don't do that. And sometimes it's a screaming loud voice. And yet willingly, we do it anyways. And Satan comes right back and says, why not? It's right there. You know you want it. You deserve it. Come on, you've earned it. Some of you are smiling because you know exactly what I'm talking about. You hear this warring in your head. And God's saying, you don't need the immediate gratification. You might desire it. But here's an example. All across our country, young men are trading in their destiny these days. They're exchanging it for time consumed on the Internet and consumed playing with games. And they're throwing away their opportunities to move ahead and find out what God really has for them. I'd say that this issue of Satan trying to deceive us and say we need this immediate gratification is perpetuated upon our society like none other until I look back through Scripture and I see he's been doing this same old game for hundreds and thousands of years, trying to rob us of what God intends for us. Is there a bowl of soup in your life today? Kind of a crazy way of asking that. But there could be a temptation right there in front of you. And God says, don't go there. And he doesn't mean play with it, touch it, taste it. It's not what he's talking about. He's saying, don't go there. Don't become a profane person. Don't trample under the lightly the things of God. And listen to me today, young people especially. This has generational consequences. If you think not, watch this. Bring the map up on the screen, will you please? You see in yellow all the way down here, the very bottom, it's called the kingdom of Edom. Above that is the promised land, the land of Israel. Edom is the kingdom that Esau established. When he went out on his own and he finally got his act together, God did bless him, even though he was not a worshiper of God. God still blessed him because he faithfully carried out the promise that he gave to his father Isaac. And Jacob went off to establish the northern kingdom, Israel, and blessed it abundantly, what we know today as the Jewish people. Here's why this is important and why I tell you it is generational. The kingdom of Edom, founded by Esau, who was known as an Edomite, is the great, 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 great grandfather of King Herod who tried to kill baby Jesus. And King Herod Antipas, his son, is the one who presided over the crucifixion of Jesus. Esau, who so easily threw away the destiny that he could have had as a man of God, produced the king who would ultimately execute the king of kings. Is that not an amazing thought, how it can be generational? What we seem to think as a simple little decision? God, God <laughs> this is fascinating actually. This kingdom of Edom down here, Many people, especially in the archaeological world, denied that it even existed and said even if it did, it didn't actually get established until 700 B.C. Well, as it would happen three years ago over in Jordan while they're digging for artifacts, they found that indeed the kingdom of Edom did get established in 1200 B.C. 
by a guy by the name of Esau. Once again, authenticating scripture. That's for free. You didn't need to know that, but it just backs it up. Let me take you with this knowledge that you have now all the way back to the book of Hebrews and read this passage with me again with new eyes. Hebrews chapter 12. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless, profane, in parentheses, person, like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. The reality today is many in this room, many Christians, are just like Elvis' motorcycle. Still under the quilt in the corner of the garage. And you got the label of the king on you. You have incredible worth. God says, go out there and seize it. I want to bless you abundantly. Don't throw away the things of God. Take it seriously. You're labeled with the king. Would you stand with me? I'm going to pray a prayer of blessing over you. This is a prayer that goes all the way back to the early days of the children of Israel. might be familiar to some of you if you grew up in the church. Yahavo barak panim, the blessing of the face. Close your eyes and listen to this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord our God make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Father, we thank you for the things that we've learned today. As my brothers and sisters go out this building and enjoy a meal together and fellowship and fun and laughter, impress upon us the things of your word. There is nothing that remains but your word. Bear it deep into our soul, Father. Cause us to use it this week when we think about our decisions. God, I ask this in the mighty name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.